Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, emotional intelligence or EI is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course, a 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity, become a stellar leader, and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.key stepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration. What do you know about yourself? I am kind, creative, jealous, amazed, and All the things that I see, they're amazing. What's this for? Um, it's for a show that's about learning what other people think of you and how sometimes that doesn't match what you think about yourself. Oh. Have you ever thought about that? Kind of. Welcome to First Person Plural, Season 3, Episode 1. In this episode, a meeting of the Dans. Daniel Goleman and Dan Harris sit down to talk about self-awareness and what happens when you find out that others' perception of you is different than your own. Hi, I'm Margo, and I'm five, and my favorite color is violet. And what do you think... Cora would say about you if she was telling her new friend about her sister Margo, how would she describe you? She would say I give a lot of hugs. And if you were going to introduce Margo to somebody else and say like my sister's Margo, she's five, and say three things about her, what would you say? I think she really likes to be funny and she's good at it. And she's really curious. She asks a lot of questions, and I think that's great, even though sometimes it annoys me a tiny bit. First Person Plural is brought to you by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on emotional intelligence, leadership, and mindfulness. If you're interested in learning more about emotional intelligence and its positive impact on personal and organizational excellence, check out Leadership, The Power of Emotional Intelligence, Selected Writings by Daniel Goleman. This book is Daniel Goleman's first comprehensive collection of more than two decades worth of key findings on leadership. Each chapter is a unique and useful device that helps leaders, coaches, HR officers, managers, and educators effectively guide and motivate others. Leadership, The Power of Emotional Intelligence is 20% off at keystepmedia.com slash shop with promo code LEADERSHIP20.
Welcome to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. I'm Daniel Goleman, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Hanuman Goleman and Elizabeth Solomon. Hello, team. Hello. Hey, Dan. Hi, Hanuman. Hey, Liz. We are so thrilled to be here kicking off what is our third season. We launched this podcast with a single aim to go beyond the theory of emotional intelligence and understand the variety of ways it shows up in our day-to-day world. I'm really pleased to have Dan Harris on today's show. An author, podcaster, and entrepreneur, Dan Harris spent 21 years as an anchor and correspondent for ABC News, hosting such shows as Nightline and the weekend editions of Good Morning America. Dan has reported from all over the world, covering wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and producing investigative reports in Haiti and Cambodia and the Amazon. After having a nationally televised panic attack on Good Morning America, Dan discovered meditation, and he went on to write the best-selling book, 10% Happier. This marked the beginning of Harris's transition from a media icon to a mindfulness expert. The book was a welcome contribution to the mindfulness movement as it provided a way for meditation skeptics, like Harris himself, to give the practice a shot. That first book led to the 10% Happier app, a second book, and Dan's podcast, where he interviews celebrities, entrepreneurs, authors, scientists, and meditation teachers about how to do life better. And hearing what Dan Harris has to share about his own journey into self-awareness is really valuable for us all. As Dan Harris and I got into later in the conversation, that's half the story. The other half of the story is how other people see you and how that fits or doesn't fit with how you see yourself. That's another kind of uh, self-awareness and self-discovery that it's both uh, painful and a rare treasure to get that information. So tell us a little about what 10% Happier is doing and hopes to do. 10% Happier is kind of, from my perspective, multifaceted because there was the book that came out nearly eight years ago. And the whole goal there was to get people interested in meditation. And then when that book became way more popular than I thought it was going to become. I started a bunch of spinoff businesses. One of them was uh, a meditation app, also called 10% Happier. And uh, the teachers on that app are people that you know well, Danny, uh, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, and many others in the insight community. Uh, And I also started a podcast called 10% Happier. And on that show, I interview luminaries such as Daniel Goleman and uh, many meditation teachers and happiness researchers and uh, celebrities who have meditation practices. So yeah, it's kind of a Hydra headed enterprise at this point. I'm talking to you now in the context of a series about uh, a set of competencies that I see as embodying emotional intelligence. The first of which, and I think the most fundamental is self-awareness and mindfulness, which you have become a champion of is applied self-awareness. But I think there's still some skepticism out there about this. So let me ask you, why bother with this? What's in it for anybody? I semi-facetiously refer to myself as an evangelist for meditation and mindfulness. Um, Mindfulness being one of the qualities that meditation can train. 
but I'm not, I'm not a fundamentalist or a dogmatist. I'm, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. That's, that's fine. But the, the case for it is pretty strong. For me, what really, you know, got me interested was the science. I was long skeptical of, of, about anything that a whiffed of the new age, but um, my parents are both academic physicians or were until they retired. My wife is an academic physician. I, I was not good at at math. So I, I became somebody who wears makeup and talks to television cameras, but I respect science. And when I saw all this science, which is still in its early stages, and as you know, well, Danny, there's, there's a potential for this science around mindfulness and meditation to be hyped. But I, I think what you can say is that it strongly suggests the research does that, you know, short daily doses of meditation can confer a long list of tantalizing health benefits, such as interesting changes to the brain and the zones associated with self-awareness, attention regulation, compassion, uh, stress, boosted immune system, lowered release of cortisol. Uh, it's been shown to be particularly helpful with anxiety and depression. I've suffered with both of those conditions since I was, you know, a little kid. So that is what got me interested. And I, I think for a lot of people, that is an intriguing proposition. There are lots of skeptical retorts to what I've just said. One of them may be, especially from ambitious people, is this going to leave me ineffective? That was what my father's concern was when I first started getting interested in meditation. But you know, if you look around the people who've embraced this practice, they include scientists, C-suite folks, elite athletes elite journalists, elite entertainers. And so uh, they're, they're doing it because it makes them more effective, not less. It, it, it boosts their ability to, to focus and it lowers their emotional reactivity, both of which can help you be better at whatever it is you want to do. And the science does support that. As you know, I did this book with Richard Davidson, Altered Traits, looking at that data. And it's as strong as you say. However... You know, there's a line from Strawberry Fields. Life is easier with eyes closed. <laughs> I'd like your take on that. Ignorance is bliss. Yeah, I mean, I don't think ignorance is bliss. Uh, and I don't think life is easier with your eyes closed. I think that's a misunderstanding. <laughs> I, a couple of years ago, I, I received some very harsh feedback and I called our mutual friend, Joseph Goldstein, the legendary meditation teacher, to tell him about it and basically to complain to wine. And um, he said, self-knowledge is always bad news, which I thought was hilarious and also a sort of counterintuitively compassionate thing to say, which is, yeah, you, Harris, got some tough feedback, but like this is welcome to the human condition. We all have lots of difficult, you might even say ugly aspects of our personality. The choice is, would you rather see it so that you cannot be owned by it? Or do you want to pretend it's not there, live with your eyes closed, buy into the ignorance is bliss myth. And then this stuff, your traumas, your ancient storylines, your habit patterns is just running you without you knowing it's, it's a malevolent puppeteer and you're not even aware of the puppeteer. And so what self-awareness does, what meditation can help you do is to kind of cut the strings of the aforementioned puppeteer. If you're self-aware, you know what you're feeling and thinking why you're feeling it, how it shapes your perception and your impulse to act. And you don't necessarily need to be doing mindfulness meditation to have that ability. But wouldn't you agree that that helps you steer more clearly and through life? 
mindfulness meditation or self-awareness? Self-awareness. Absolutely. Yes. And I, I agree with that you don't have to do meditation. Some people are naturally self-aware. You know, a, a psychotherapy, I think, is a good, uh, another modality for self-awareness. Um, marrying well is a good, <laughs> will help you in this department. There are lots of ways to get at this. For me, the meditation really helps. And I will say that my ability to be self-aware varies from day to day, from moment to moment. Sometimes I actually really am on my game and I, I catch anger or fear before I do something phenomenally stupid. One of the other elements that we talk about in the emotional intelligence world for self-awareness, I don't know, is mapped in the way you're approaching it. And that is that there's a high concordance, a high agreement between how you see yourself and how others see you. That makes complete sense to me. Um, and I don't know, you know, in the in the meditation traditions in which you and I have spent a lot of time training, that's not something that's held up that I've ever heard really held up in some consistent way. It just makes logical sense. If you're really self-aware, then your view of how you move through the world should comport with the people in your world. I have experienced <laughs> in rather harsh and humiliating ways a lack of, of agreement between my self-image at times and the image that other people hold to me. Um, a couple of years ago, when I was referring to the harsh feedback I received, it was in the aftermath of a 360 review that I got, which it's basically a, an anonymous survey of your superiors, peers, and direct reports. And the feedback, there were so many things that I was doing that were not very skillful, of which I was unaware, or I just, I didn't know how bad it was. And so that's another self-awareness delivery system, the 360 review, or just feedback of any kind that can help bring into alignment your view of yourself and the way other people view you. Exactly. And uh, there's data you might be interested in that we've found, which is that if the gap between how you see yourself and how others see you is huge, you're much less likely to be able to develop strengths uh, in emotional intelligence competencies like teamwork or empathy or even managing your own uh, disruptive feelings, self-control. Uh, and if the gap is small, you're much more likely to have strengths across the board in emotional intelligence. So that seems to me to be a dimension that is important, particularly in the working world. I think maybe in the social world generally, that uh, may not be spoken to by uh, a meditative path, but there might be other ways to get better at that. I agree. And I've not spent as much time nearly as you have it in the meditation world, but I don't view it, and I don't think you do either, as the be-all and end-all when it comes to human flourishing. I think Buddhism and meditation have an enormous amount to offer, obviously, but science, social science, neuroscience, uh, psychological science, these all have a lot to offer as well. So, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a kind of maximalist uh, when it comes to doing life better. Yeah. And I would throw into that list you just gave uh, feedback from your spouse. Absolutely. One of the elements of the uh, competence of self-awareness in the emotional intelligence world is this accurate sense of your strengths and limits. So you had a 360 and it was a little bit sobering as, as they often are, but actually you can see a, a profile of things you're good at, things you're not so good at as a map 
for what you can develop further. You know, there's this idea of a growth mindset where you see yourself and you see other people as able to get better at all this. Uh, was your 360 in that context? I do like this idea of a growth mindset. And what I was going to say is that there is an academic at NYU I admire. Her name is Dolly Chug, and she looks at bias and prejudice and her way of getting us to look at what can be very hard to look at, which is our own capacity for bigotry, which is wired deeply into all of us through evolution and uh, none of us is immune to get us to look at it she likes to use a term good ish so most of us think of ourselves as good people and when that's challenged we can go into shame or denial or compartmentalization or what a friend of mine calls the toilet vortex where you're just spinning down and down if you reframe it as, yeah, I'm a good-ish person, which means that I retain the capacity to be a schmuck, um, but I can work on it, um, then that information can be slotted in under, you know, uh, opportunity for growth. And uh, that is very much the way I approached the 360 I got. Um, and yet, you know, to this day, when I receive feedback, I can see my first instinct is to go into rebuttal or shame or some, some, you know, it's just very human to not want to hear it. But uh, over time, I'm trying to train myself at the very least for my second instinct to be, all right, let's lean in, understand this and work on it. What you're saying, and I think what's really a, a healthy way to think about it, is that this could be a very useful moment. It could be a, a learning opportunity. And, you know, when you're sitting by yourself, and watching your mind, you may or may not pick up what your biases are, what your patterns are. You may be blind to them. But I think something powerful gets added when there's an external look at you, that you and from someone you respect and trust, uh, and that that adds a whole layer of information that you may not get from introspection. That's why for me, I mean, I completely agree with everything you just said. And for me, meditation is necessary, but not sufficient. So I'm not being prescriptive here. I'm talking about for me, the practice is so useful. you can see so much and you can develop the capacity to look inward and to see things and, and to be able to withstand the tumult that is happening in your mind. You can also train up related capacities like friendliness and compassion. And so meditation practices, I think, um, for me, really, really helpful. But it's not, as I said earlier, the be all and end all. And I think that we got to get up off the cushion and move through the world. And we can learn a ton by allowing people we respect to tell us uh, where we're uh, messing up. Well, when I say respect, I mean, people you'll listen to, you're not going to dismiss them or you know, immediately counter what they say. Yeah. And you can get better at, um, at uh, broadening your circle and learning how to overcome your biases and listen to more people than you might have heretofore. When you say broaden your circle, it, there's more than that, because there's a kind of a special social contract when you invite someone to give you honest feedback, because, you know, the social contract generally is let's be nice to each other. Let's not rock the boat. But there's certain people, a coach. Uh, a therapist 
who you have a different contract with. That's true. Can you do that with friends? Can you do it with family? You know, I, I really value f- feedback. And so, I mean, you experienced this because the first book I wrote, um, I sent it to you early and you gave me really helpful feedback. And I, when I have something that I'm working on that I really care about, will get over myself and invite feedback from people. And I'm always so grateful when people are willing to just really tell me what they think. Um, I am not as good at doing that for others sometimes. You know, there's there's not only the skill of receiving feedback, there's the skill of delivering it. And both are skills that you can work on. These are not the good news here is that all of this, and I think this is a conviction you and I both share deeply, is that we're not stuck with, you know, our personality traits as if they're like factory settings that are unalterable, that you can work on these things. They're all they're all skills. I mean, we do have, you know, factory settings, but you can turn the dials in meaningful ways slowly over time, but, but actually they can compound in ways that can genuinely change your life and the lives of people around you. I think that's a very optimistic scenario, but I think it's also telling that the 360s allow candor because people are anonymous. Generally, it, it frees people to be honest if they think you will not know who said what. Yes, that's true. And, and I think that's especially important when there's a power differential. You know, I've, learned a lot in recent years about I've started to become more aware of you know the power I have and how I may be unaware historically unaware of it and I'm not creating a sense of safety and trust in the minds of people who are around me so I'm not getting the feedback that I actually need and then by the same token how when I'm around somebody who's got more power than me that maybe I'm not giving them the feedback they need and that's to everybody's detriment so That's why the anonymity is so helpful in a 360. So the person who has less power has more to tell you, but maybe is more fearful of telling you because of the power difference. Well, one of the more humbling, if not humiliating things that came out of my 360 is that I was not aware of this. And my relationships with junior staffers in particular were fraught and I was being dismissive and impatient and wasn't listening as closely. And it wasn't what I, how I wanted to be in the world, but also those were not, you know, good, healthy relationships. And some, you know, when you're in a relationship and even if you're not aware of it fully, that something's a little off, it makes life a little more uncomfortable and it's stilted and stiff. And so just having those relationships get better over time has really just made my, my life a, a better place to live for me. And, and the other thing to say is that I, the more I can create what's called psychological safety, that's the term of art, um, the better the feedback is on my little teams, you know, my podcast team or the team that's helping me edit my book, uh, the book I'm writing right now. And that all redounds to my benefit, all of which to say there's a selfish case. And I really like the selfish case all, because that's how I'm wired. I, and the Buddha who I admire, spoke really to the pleasure centers of the brain. You know, you will be happier if you can, if you're, even if it's painful to see, you know, how you may be abusing your power, how you may be comporting yourself in ways that that are out of alignment with your values uh, or your self-image, you will be happier if you can see that and move through it and and address it. I think that there's a lesson for anyone in a position of power from this, which is 
that self-awareness is really the first step toward your creating a better working team of your direct reports, of the people that you're uh, in a group with. Uh, it has to start with that self-awareness. And the self-awareness here we're talking about, Dan, is I think at the social level. I don't think you can more easily come up with it by going inside. I think you need to listen outside. I think that's true. And I do think that the line between inside and outside is porous. And um, you may not know that some message you picked up in your childhood, you're just kind of acting it out all the time. And, um, you know, having a good psychotherapist, having a good meditation practice, combining that with being able to listen to the people in your social and, and, and work lives can help you suss this out. And, and sometimes it can go really deep into your history and your patterns. You know, my world uh, and in the media now, in the news media now, and in, um, and then running a meditation company or helping to run a meditation company, our staff, the 20 somethings and 30 somethings, they're just not going to put up with what I just mindlessly countenanced uh, when I was coming up. And so they'll just quit uh, or report you, um, uh, or, you know, complain in a way that is really disruptive and, or, you know, the morale will sour really quick or, you know, people just will go on, you'll get, you know, I, this is an overused term, but you can get canceled, quote unquote. So there are lots of ways in which, and I think this is generally very healthy, that young people today are not willing to put up with uh, the kind of hazing that I had certainly endured. And you might have uh, at the New York Times, I don't know. And, you know, th there are ups upsides and downsides to this dynamic. But from, from my perspective, it's mostly upside. Uh, it's a little bit harder to manage because you can't just rely on brute force, but uh, the teams, when they're functioning, in my experience now, are functioning better than anything I've experienced. Oh, that's very good news. I'm glad to hear that. There, that, however, reminds me of another trend I've seen that relates to self-awareness. One thing that self-awareness can do, um, apart from, say, letting you recognize your own defensiveness in <laughs> to external inputs uh, is to put you more in touch with your sense of values, what matters to you, your, your meaning, what, what means something to you, and therefore you do because it's its own reward. And there is some suggestion that younger generations are even more in touch with this. And I wonder, for example, if the... Uh, sense of impending doom from climate change may be fast-tracking this, or I don't know, it's pure speculation, we don't know. But I, I wonder if you've seen that in people you're working with, a sense of, of meaning, of value, purpose. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 one of the things people who manage millennials and Gen Z will tell you is that it is very common that you, 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 ask, you make an assignment, and whereas when I was young, you, I just did it. Now people will say, why? They, they want to understand what does this mean? And I, I'm speaking in generalities here, but often people will say why, and th they want to know what the overall meaning 
overarching meaning of their work is. And they want to know that the company they're working for has some meaning in the world. From my perch, that's what I'm seeing. And I think that kind of self-awareness uh, among the young people that with whom I work about uh, what they care about and wanting to make sure that their work is aligned with that, from my end of one perspective, seems quite quite adaptive. Do you see a way in which uh, tuning into yourself can be a way to get greater conviction about what does matter to you? Yes. In common parlance, this would be described as listening to your heart. Now, I have always rebelled against this term heart. Like, what does that even mean? And it is used a lot in, in pop psychology and, and in the meditation world. But, but you can kind of think about it as a below the neck intelligence, which is reflected in common expressions such as knowing something in your bones or in your gut, in your viscera. Um, and we live in a culture where we are, and I don't think this is particularly new, there's that oft quoted line from a, I think a Henry James novel about some character who lived at a short distance from his body. But it's very easy in modern life to really be disconnected from the signals that are coming, you know, from below the neck. And, um, you know, we're another analogy I've heard people use is like a Macy's Day parade float. We're like all head, massive head with just some strings below, just floating through the world. And there is an enormous amount of wisdom in your heart, in your gut, in your bones. And for me, I've noticed that, uh, you know, if I'm listening internally, I can get a sense of, what is it that I want to do with my life? And over the past three, four, five years, as I've really taken this on as a practice, I've been serially divesting. You know, first I left my anchor gig at a show called Nightline because, which I had fought for for years, but because it was it was obvious to me that it was just one more thing on my plate that I couldn't continue to do. And then I just left ABC News altogether and um, to focus more on what, you know, to be cute, my heart wants me to do. There's another concept I wanted to uh, share with you. It's, uh, it comes from my friend Howard Gardner at Harvard uh, and some work he did with um, a couple of other psychologists on good work. And you may be familiar with it. Good work puts together what feels right, what you love doing with what you're good at and what has most meaning for you. That's the best kind of work. And Dan, it sounds like you're heading more and more toward good work. I applaud you. I'm doing my best. I mean, that, that is not to say I've uprooted all selfish motivation. Um, and that's something I've really wrestled with a lot. My home life, as I mentioned, was pretty tranquil. My parents were really successful uh, physicians. By successful, I don't mean like they were loaded or anything. They were academic physicians at Harvard and they made, both of them made, in particular, my mom, made meaningful contributions to the scientific medical literature. And in, in my dad's case, he, he did a lot of really amazing patient care. And um, yeah, I feel like the lessons I picked up around the house were in the main really positive. You know, my parents were very serious about their relationship. They're very serious about parenting. They're very serious about their careers. They're very serious about health. Um, my dad was running marathons before that was a cool thing to do. I remember 
we used to, we lived in Newton, Massachusetts, and he used to run the Boston Marathon. And we lived not far from Commonwealth Avenue, referred to in Boston as Comav. And we would go out to Comav and watch the marathon and he would run by and we would hold out little things of water for him to grab as he ran by. And so it was very positive. And I take a lot of that into my grown up life. Um, I sometimes joke about how I don't actually do anything my parents told me to do or not to do. Like I wasn't allowed to have sugar and I eat sugar all the time now. And I wasn't allowed to watch TV. And I, for years I worked inside the television, but I really find that I, I naturally do everything that they modeled for me. Maybe not as well as them. And when getting the 360 review, I saw that I wasn't, you know, I was not nearly as compassionate as I believe my parents were. But that was part of the the shock and horror of getting the 360 is that I realized, oh, yeah, I have this ideal that I saw at home and I am not living up to it. And so I really need to get right on this score. The one thing I would say that I did inherit from my parents, maybe maybe two things that are that are trickier. Um, and it's not so much from my parents, but I think from just um, our family lineage generally. One of them is anger. You know, m- my dad is not an angry guy, but my mother had my mother was quite intimidating, and her dad was a v- kind of kind of rage inclined individual. And she and I had a difficult relationship, particularly in my adolescence, because she saw so much of her dad in me, and she didn't particularly like her dad for good reason, and. So that has been something that I've really had to work with. Just my propensity for anger um, has been really, really damaging at times, mostly to me, because a lot of the anger is self-directed. And that relates to the other thing that's problematic that I think I picked up from my parents, which is both of them are just super, super hardworking and ambitious. And, you know, I've taken that way too far at times, you know, for many years, for well over a decade, I worked seven days a week until recently, because I, during the week, I would work at ABC News and host a podcast and help run a temp, the 10% Happier Meditation app, which is a venture-backed company, and write books. And then on the weekends, I would anchor Good Morning America. So it's seven days a week for at least 10 years, and probably six or seven days a week for the 10 years that preceded it. Um, and that created all sorts of problems. You know, my friendships weren't as close as they could have been. My relationship with my son, who's now seven, was not as close as it could have been. And I, I mentioned earlier this kind of process of divesting I've been going through. I think that uh, in no small measure, I've had to divest. Uh, I've had so much to walk away from because I was compulsively doing this fear-based acquisition of new titles and responsibilities, as opposed to taking the risk of focusing on things that my to be cheesy heart wants to do. And I'll just say one last thing, which is, I said, that heart is cheesy. Some people get mad at me when I say that. Um, And so because for some people, it's not cheesy, it's it's actually super important. And I agree, it is really important. It's an, you know, and it is, as you said before, Danny, metaphorical. But for me, I have a lot of trouble because of ingrained sexism and, you know, culturally ingrained sexism and um, just incurable skepticism bordering on cynicism that I might have picked up in the journalistic world. I have a lot of trouble with this sort of heart-centered language. And yet, the more I can get over myself and embrace these practices, uh, the better my life has been. I'll finish on one quote from a 
meditation teacher, I don't know who said this, but some student was complaining to the teacher about the compassion meditation, loving kindness meditation. And the teacher said, well, if you can't be cheesy, you can't be free. And on that note, Dan Harris, I want to thank you for joining us. You've been most kind, not cheesy at all. Anything for you, my friend. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to First Person Plural, EIM Beyond. Subscribe now and sign up for our newsletter to get notified as new episodes are released. This show is brought to you by co-hosts Daniel Goleman, Hanuman Goleman, and Elizabeth Solomon. It's sponsored by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Special thanks to today's guest, Dan Harris. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, check out the show notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Elizabeth Solomon, Gabby Acosta, and me, Carrie Seed. The show was edited by Michelle Zipkin. Bryant Johnson is our associate producer and graphic designer. Music in this episode includes Tiny Footsteps in the Snow by BioUnit and theme music by Amber Ojeda. Until next time, be well. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.